We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 4 today. And on the screen, you'll see the verse we're going to read, which is Hebrews 11.35. It'll be up there momentarily. 2 Kings chapter 4. Happy Mother's Day. I'm so thankful for a wonderful mother I had. I have called her over the years until she went to be with the Lord. Uh, I would still call her up when she's in her early 80s, mid 80s, and ask advice. She was always such a blessing to me. I heard about a mother that got on an airplane, called the stewardess and said, I want to be in a different location. Please move me to a different seat. This crying baby is driving me crazy. She said, well, ma'am, I can't move you. She said, why? She said, that's your baby. <laughs> I think all mothers have screamed at their children a time or two to stop screaming. Um, <clears throat> I heard about a girl ask her mother, she said, what's it like, mom, to have the greatest daughter in the world? Her mom said, I don't know, you'll have to ask your grandmother. <laughs> Think of all the great Bible stories of mothers and uh, unusual stories. We, we know one turned into a pillar of salt. One requested a prophet be decapitated. Two mothers committed incest with their, uh, with their, with their father to be, to be mothers. Uh, one killed all her offspring so she could lead the nation of Judah. One was eaten by dogs. Two harlots fought over a baby. And one even ate her own child during a siege. Gruesome things. Then you think about all the unnamed women of the Bible. It's fascinating to me. Some were women of great influence, and, and there were great stories in the Bible about their lives. And their names are not in this book. You think of uh, Job's wife, of course, Lot's wife, Noah's wife, Peter's wife, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, you know, Jesus' sisters, the Pharaoh's uh, daughters who reared Moa, <laughs> Moses. The Pharaoh's daughter who reared Moses. Samson's mother, a story about her. Jephthah's, Jephthah's uh, the story about Jephthah's daughters and her vow. The queen of Sheba, Naaman's wife. And the servant and her servant who, who spoke on behalf of the Lord and, and the prophet to Naaman. And then, of course, Potiphar's wife. So many stories. And it's always been amazing to me we do not have their names. In fact, today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. There are only two women named in the book of Hebrews and two referred to. The two named are Sarah, the mother of the Hebrew nation, and Rahab, a harlot, Canaanite, who, of course, protected the spies and is listed in the hall of faith, a Canaanite. I preached about her a few years ago and preached her as, as Rahab the saint because she's no longer a harlot. She's a saint with God. And we, we talk about these two women, but there are two others referred to, the two women of the Old Testament, the Bible says in Hebrews, who had faith that their dead sons would be raised again. 1 Kings 17, the woman is the widow of Zarephath, and then today's text, 2 Kings. So on the screen, stand with me, and you can read it in your Bible or read it on the screen. It's a custom here to stand, and I've kept that custom. It says here, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. We don't know who those others are. I've 
thought about that a lot. There are ideas. But here are two women who received their dead raised, raised again. And in the Old Testament, there are those two great stories. Let's pray. God bless us. I need you this hour to help me to concentrate and to deliver what you've given me this week in my study. And Lord, that you'll just speak to hearts from your word. And your word gives a message and we need to understand what that message is. We can make application, but it's important that I uh, properly teach what this passage says so that it will speak to hearts. The supernatural book, the word of God, thank you for it, Lord. Without it, I'm helpless. I'm defenseless. Thank you for it. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Here we have a woman of means in our text today. Chapter 4 of 2 Kings. Obviously different than the woman of Zarephath who just didn't have anything. She just had a handful of meal to feed her son. Here we have a woman that is able to make a special room and provide it with furniture for the prophet. A prophet's chamber. And in that day, that would be a woman who had, had quite a bit, really. And uh, we, she would eventually be a widow. But she's now uh, preparing a place and prepares a place for Elisha. And because of her faithfulness to God, Elisha would tell her, you're going to have a son. And what a great story this is. Um, she's one of the two women who, who saw her son raised back to life. Prior to her faith and prior to this story of the resurrected boy, we find several things about her. If you notice verse 8, verse 8, we see here she was a woman who entertained strangers. Now that in the New Testament Hebrews tells us that the word hospitality means someone who entertains strangers. Remember, preachers didn't have places to stay. I mean, motels were were not safe. There were things going on there that weren't healthy. And so the traveling preacher often stayed with a church family. And they were strangers they'd never met. They would travel uh, rather than stay in a motel where things are going on that aren't good. You know, they would stay. And, and so here she is. She's going to make a special room because she perceives that Elisha is a prophet. In fact, notice in the second uh, verse 9, we find her a woman of spiritual insight. And if you're a believer, a child of God, the Holy Spirit is in you and you can have that spiritual insight. I love the Old Testament tells us clearly the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Listen, believers have the capability of just being wise people because God indwells us. And if you're making dumb decisions, you're not praying, you're not studying, and you're not listening to that still small voice. You are doing things outside of God's will because you're not paying attention. But notice, she's a woman, she says, I perceive in verse nine that this is a prophet of God. So she's a woman of spiritual insight. Third, she's a woman of financial substance as we stated above in verse 10, she's gonna make a room, furnish it with a bed and so forth for the prophet. Then we find her a woman who's satisfied, content with life. Why, why do we know that? In verse 13, Elisha wants to reward her for the fact that she made this room and she feeds him and takes care of him. He says, what do you want me to do for you? She says, I don't need anything. My family takes good care of me. Isn't that something? In, in opposite to Gehazi, the servant here of Elisha, who later when Naaman is healed, would go to Naaman and try and deceive him into getting some sort of gift and became a leper. He's the servant in this story. So she's content to be uh, where she is and to have what she has. 
And then she's a lot like Sarah in verse 16. She's barren, but we find she's barren for a different reason. Her husband is really old. The text says that. Maybe she can have a child. Obviously, she can, but she may be a little older, but her husband's very old. And so she's barren. And like Sarah, who uh, we know laughed, and that often makes us think she was disrespectful, eventually she's talked about in Hebrews as a woman of faith. So she was a good example as a woman of faith, but at first she was skeptical. This lady was too. You're going to give me, a, you're going to have me, God's going to give me a child. Don't deceive me. Don't, don't make me think that if it's not true. But she's like Sarah. And I want to mention three things here. First of all, an attempt at restoration. We pick up here in verses 17 and following. An attempt at restoration. Verse 18 she has a child, of course. We know that. She's told she's going to have a child. The child's old enough to go help his father, and so he goes with dad to work the fields. And he has possibly what most believe to be a heat stroke. He had a headache. He says to his dad, my head hurts. His dad has someone carry him back to his mother. And here's his mother nurturing him, trying to restore him. You know, she's probably putting a wet rag on his head. Don't you love moms, you know? <laughs> You remember when you were little and you had a fever? It was your mom that put a rag on your head to try and cool you down. It was your mom that was concerned. We didn't have Tylenol back then, but, you know, Tylenol came along. It's always mom that's there that cares. I love that about mothers. And so she's nurturing him. And unfortunately, the boy dies. So she's no doubt sort of taken back because she had... She had been promised this child and she kind of was skeptical at first, but it ended up having great faith in his resurrection. But she's thinking, well, why would I have a child? And then the child die. Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaiah would say, all flesh is as grass of the field. Death is a reality. All of you will face it unless the rapture comes. Some of you have experienced those close to you that have passed, gone on, died, and, and we understand we've all been on that side of it. We will all be on the other side of it. Thank God if you're a believer, he walks through us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us. But here is, is this woman, and now she has to trust in a resurrection. She had to, no doubt, understand the miracle of 1 Kings 17, the woman of Zarephath. She had heard that. Elijah, you say, are you sure she heard it? I'm quite sure there are reasons for that. I'll tell you in a moment. But she has trust in a resurrection now. She carries her boy and lays him on the prophet's bed. Well, that's not what you do with a dead body unless you think something great could happen. And so she lays him on the prophet's bed and uh, she told her husband she's going to see the man of God. And he's kind of evidently not a mature Christian like she is because he says, why are you going? It's not a feast day. It's not a special Jewish day. Why are you going to see the man of God? It's sort of like the guy that says to his wife, why are you going to church? It's not Easter Sunday. You know, she's, uh, she, you know, she's going and she's saying, I'm going to go. And, and uh, she says, can you provide, tell one of the servants to bring a, an animal, a donkey, and I can ride. And so uh, she says to her servant, go fast. Don't worry about me. Let's get there. Uh, I love her, uh, her attitude. And of course, the greatest calling is not being a mother today. The greatest calling is to be a wife. They have proven this. Studies, scripture bears it out. 
You know, many people, they've studied homes and, and the home that's got a good marriage is the best thing you can offer your children. In fact, when you have a child-centered home, that can be a problem because the children growing up and they, they don't have quite the respect for dad that they need to have. Listen, your husband needs to be first. It's not, this is not a plug for the men. And then, and then the women, and, and the career is way down the line. You know, so many career women, women today. There's nothing wrong. We believe the virtuous woman worked outside the home. She went to the market. She bought and sold goods and made money. We understand that. We're not saying that it's wrong to work, but what we're saying is it's wrong to have your priorities wrong. And, and while children are important, your marriage is vitally important, and then taking care of the children is motherhood is just a great calling. How many women do we know that their career is what life is all about? Well, I'll put my kids in daycare for a career. I want to finish my college for a career. And then they get their job and, and their kids are reared in the, in the school system and sometimes the school system is not very good. They get out of the school system and they may go to a, a daycare, after school care, and then they come home and they may have to stay with a neighbor or just hang out in the neighborhood. And we wonder why our kids have problems. They have problems because the parents are absent. Am I saying it's wrong to work? No. In your circumstances, in your bills, and, and your life, I understand all of us are different. But I'll tell you what I always loved. My mother worked at times, but I always loved coming home from school, my mother being there. I could talk to her. I could talk to her about school. And we'd eat at the dinner table, and we'd have our devotions, and I could share what's bothering me. And uh, my dad would read that little daily bread. I know you've heard that before. Uh, and, and we would have that time together. But mom was there. A buddy of mine whose mom was a teacher, nothing wrong with that, a godly woman, a great woman, he said, I really envy you. You come home to a mom and homemade cookies. I said, I know, I like that too. He really admired that about my family. Now, not everybody has that opportunity. I mean, many of you were either reared by a, a, a single parent. Some of you have to rear your children without a spouse. I understand that. But we know the best case scenario is a mom and dad to be happily married setting that example of what a good relationship is. And then the children seeing that, responding to that, and mom and dad being there when the children need them emotionally. Our kids need us more than just physically. They need more than food. You know, our kids need that guidance that the parent gives. And so here we have uh, her, this, this lady, and she's, she's hurrying to see the prophet. She's approaching Mount Carmel. She's approaching Elisha, and he sees her. And he says to Gehazi, his, his servant, he says, go meet her. I could stop right there and preach about all the great meetings in the Bible. Yeah. You know, the prodigal son coming home. Isn't that a great meeting? Yeah. We're going to have a great meeting someday. Yeah. You know? But here, he sends the servant, go meet her and find out what's wrong. And so he runs out to meet her. And he told Gehazi to ask if everything's okay with her husband and son. And this is a passage really that kind of alarms people. He answered and said, it's well. Now her son had just died. The servant's asking if they're okay. And she said, all is well. And she wants to talk to Elisha, obviously. But her son is dead. But she has what? Faith. That's what Hebrews says. I believe in, in many her scholars I read this week believe that it's, a, it's, I'm going too fast. At this point, she had faith. She thought, well, I know about Zarephath. 
I know about Elisha and I know the one, the, the, the Lord. I know the Lord. And so she had faith in a resurrection, not just the future resurrection, she knew about that, but she had faith in a resurrection right now. She says, all is well. She knew the prophet, she knew God, uh, she, she understood it could happen and she believed there'd be a resurrection. That's why she laid the boy on his bed rather than laying him outside or preparing to bury him. She had faith, I love this woman of faith. My mother was a woman of faith. I remember when I was uh, surrendering to go to the mission field and I was going to go to Panama and start the military church there. I was there 10 years, then went to Okinawa and military ministries there seven years. And I'd never lived in a foreign country and Panama was kind of dangerous. Noriega was in control. And uh, my mom is the one who had faith. My dad was, you know, I don't know if this is a good business decision, son, but if God's led you, I'm gonna support you. He was a man of faith, but not like my mother. She had prayed and prayed and prayed for, a, for her kids to do something for God, and her prayers were answered with many of her kids. And my siblings all love the Lord. I'm thankful for that. But I remember my mom, her faith was that God would use me and bless me. But she was also a woman of tears. Every time we went to church, I've told you this, she would cry listening to the preaching. She loved the word. So the Sunday, my last Sunday at South Church, I was, I was there in the lobby, my mom was crying, and my pastor came over, loved my pastor, and grabbed us by the hand and prayed with us, and what a prayer. And I remember my mom and holding on to me, and my pastor holding on to me, and I thought, you know, the, my pastor prayed a prayer. He believed God would use me. He had faith. And when I was a young rabble-rouser, he was one of the people that had faith that God would use me. Uh, he used to come to our softball games and we played fast pitch softball and I played the outfield. And you know, he would say, go boy, go. And he would holler things from the bleachers. He was always a fan. He really believed that the young people in the church would amount to something for God. And that faith was instilled in me by my parents and my pastor and, and some other people that would put their arm around me and say, I believe God's gonna do something with you. Oh, that was always encouraging. But ultimately my faith came from the Lord. And so here's this woman, she's a woman of faith. And she lays him on the bed, of course, and so she, she's, she's not gonna leave Elisha. She stays with him, she travels back with him. She said, I'll not leave you. She didn't wanna go back with a servant. She wanted to travel back with Elisha. And so she travels with Elisha. And we know that when she sees Elisha, he comes and he, he, she falls at his feet. And you know, she's reverencing him and just begging, no doubt, for, for help. And Gehazi, the servant, he grabs her and, and the Bible teaches he kind of threw her out of the threw her out of the way, threw her aside. And uh, he'd show his true colors later, wouldn't he? By deceiving, you know, Naaman. But Elisha said, let her alone. I like that. You remember Mark chapter 14, it's on our screen. In Mark 14, Jesus is being anointed and oh, what a, what a scene that must have been. Yeah. Uh, perfume worth a year's wages, expensive ointment, and he's being anointed. And the disciples, we know the Bible indicates, we, we believe it was probably Judas, was one of the ones, but said, said, why is she spending this, 
the wasting this expensive ointment. What is she doing? It's so expensive. And what did Jesus say? Let her alone. She's doing a good work. And here Elijah says, leave her alone. Let her alone. He said, she's vexed. She's bitter. She's just lost her son. I think at this point, we can identify with her. All of us have been to this place in our life. Where we ask, why? 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 Why would you give me a son, Elisha? You know, he, he came to offer her something because she took care of him. And her motives weren't about getting something. She was really wanting to serve the man of God and serve God. So she's un, not understanding why he would say, here's your, you're going to have a son. And, and she doesn't understand why he would take the son. And she's struggling. She has faith he can resurrect her, but she's not understanding why he died. And she's kind of struggling here. And she says, why, why, why? Like all of us have said. You said, why this week, didn't you? Chuck's wife said, why? Chuck cut the grass today. He was fine. Why did this happen? We all had those times in our life where we say, why? I, I don't understand the ways of God. I don't understand circumstances in my life. And when I was on the mission field, sometimes I'd say, why? Why would this happen? You know, why, why, did, why, why were we there during a war? I mean, it's already hard enough to live on a foreign field when you don't really know the ins and outs of the country. And the leader of the military, Manuel Noriega, hates Americans. He's just killed someone. We live off base. We live right next to one of Noriega's headquarters. Right next door. I mean, we walked out in the parking lot and we played volleyball with the, the soldiers. And I'm thinking, you know... <laughs> This is not a great scenario. Why, Lord, do you have me living here? But I found out at a checkpoint when they stopped us several miles away and had guns pointed at our faces, when one of the men said, I know him. Padre, Padre, we play volleyball together. He said, he's our friend. There's always a reason. We don't always have the answers in life. But God's in control. We ask, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I born poor? Why am I unhealthy? Why has my child done what my child's done? I reared him in church. I have a friend whose son committed murder. His grandfather's a Christian. His dad's a Christian. And there's so many stories like that. You can think of stories in your life. And you have to ask, why? Why me? Why did this happen? And, and, you know, it gets down to this. We have to be like this woman and have faith. We have to trust in the Lord. We don't always understand, but we trust him. Elisha sends the servant, says, take my staff and go ahead. And uh, he said, don't spend the customary greeting time. Boy, the greetings in the Middle East. And I learned in Japan, greetings can sometimes be long because they greet one another with a kiss on each side and, and they bow and they, they ask about the family. And there's a lot of customs I read about this week. When I was in Japan, I, I was taught when I go to Japan. Now remember, in Japan, you have to honor the Japanese. You don't shake hands, you bow. Well, I'm, you know, I'm 6'5", had some back issues. And they said, really, the best thing to do is be the last one to bow. That's the most honoring thing you can do in Japan. So, you know, you bow, and then they bow. Oh, boy, i got to go again. And you bow, and you get into this thing, 
And I think, okay, I'm going to let him win. <laughs> but the reverence and the greetings of that day were not like, hey, hey, dude. No. They took time. So he says, get there. Don't do the customary greetings. Don't do that. Get there. You're on a mission and hurry. He takes his staff. Remember Jesus, I have a note here, Jesus in Luke 10 said to the 70, don't spend time greeting anyone. The kingdom of heaven was at hand and he wanted them to get out there urgently and get the message to the Jews that the king is here. Same thing here. There's an urgency here. And so he sends the staff along with him and Gehazi gets there, but he's not a man of power. He's not a man of influence, is he? We know what kind of person he is by what he does. And so he's got the rod and the staff. I, I love the psalmist said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, Psalm 23. But in his hand, it's not going to be effective like it would be in the Lord's hands or Elisha's hands. And so he gets there and he puts the staff on the child. Nothing happens. He goes back and says, nothing happened. So Elisha keeps coming. He has to come. The child's now dead. He says, the child's dead. And the child's mom's not going to leave Elisha, so they're, they're traveling together. Elisha's, you know, servant, and he's, he's, he's not effective, and the boy's mother are all together, and he says to uh, uh, his mother and to, to Gehazi, you stay out. He goes in alone with the, the boy and shuts the door. And it's just now this dead boy in him in the Lord. Amen. You know, I don't know why he sent them out, but certainly Gehazi didn't need to be there. He, he was a, not a good man of influence, but he sends them out and he prays a prayer, an effectual prayer, obviously nothing wavering. As James 1 says, don't pray. Pray without, without wavering. Pray by faith. And that's so hard to do. And so he prays for the boy, and the boy began to warm up. He, he laid on top of him just like Elijah did three times. He did this. He laid on top of him. It doesn't say three times, but he laid on him, and he waited for a while. The Bible said he got up and moved back and forth. And he waited for, to see something happen. And, and the boy warmed up, but he didn't see really a complete miracle. And so he, he, he's, uh, you know, he, there seems to be sort of like a gradual healing. Remember the story of the blind man? We have so many different stories in the Bible. He was healed in stages. He said, well, I see trees, men looking like trees walking. And, and then later the Lord touched him. He was completely healed. Kind of like that here. An interesting healing because he's not abruptly healed. And then all of a sudden, after this, this, this trust in a resurrection, you know, we, we see uh, he, 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 he sneezes seven times. And of course, I, I, you know, the, the number seven's wonderful. I mean, naming seven times in the Jordan River and around Jericho and the seven churches and all the sevens in the Bible are awesome. But this is involuntary. I don't see a significance here. But it does indicate the boy's coming back to life because he's sneezing. And he sneezes seven times. And some want to preach a whole sermon on seven sneezes of 2 Kings. And I just don't find that to be the, the point of emphasis here. The faith of this woman and the power of God upon his man is obviously what stands out here. And so the boy sneezes seven times. He comes back to life. And then we have this bowing in reverence. Uh, you know, 
Gehazi says to the boy's mom, you know, uh, here's your son. He says to the servant, present him to her. And he presents him. And she reverences Elisha. And that word's translated in your Bible, bow down. So she's just reverencing the man of God. And of course, reverencing the God of gods, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a great story of faith in this little woman. Now I have four things to say that we want to apply in a practical way. Uh, first of all, she looked for an opportunity and did what she was capable of doing to serve the Lord. She's a woman with a nice home evidently and she sees this man of God. She perceives him as a man of God and she says, well, I want to serve the Lord. Maybe I can do something for him. She's a woman to look for opportunity. You know, a lot of people say, I don't know what I can do. Well, look for opportunity. You can serve the Lord in so many ways, but be a person who looks for opportunity and acts upon it and do, do something for God. God has you living right where you're supposed to live. God has you working where you're supposed to work. You can be a person of influence. If this little old Jewish lady can influence people, you can influence people. And so she's, she's looking for opportunity and she's going to be hospitable. I like that about her. Looking for opportunity, doing what she's capable of doing. You know, sometimes people say, well, I want to do something for God, but I don't feel like I'm really capable. I don't feel like I measure up. If you wait until you feel like you measure up, you're never going to do anything. Do you know how inadequate I feel sometimes? I, I go 100 miles an hour, I step on words, I trip and fall verbally all the time. You know, it's, I was sitting here this morning while we were worshiping and I thought, Lord, help me, help me, help me to keep my mind focused on this message so I say what I need to say. And you feel sometimes like you're not worthy and we really aren't worthy. He makes us worthy in God's eyes because of his blood. But if I felt that way, I wouldn't be here. I'd have never preached a sermon. I realize my shortcomings, but I say, God, what can you do with me? Here's a woman that's at home thinking, what can I do? Second of all, she didn't want anything in return for her service. Remember, Elisha sent Gehazi and said, what, Elisha wanted to know, what can we do for you? She said, I don't want anything. My family takes good care of me. She, she didn't expect anything. A lot of Christians want a pat on the back. Let me tell you what I did this week, Pastor. I witnessed to 20 people. Well, tell the Lord about it. I'm proud you did that. But if you want a pat on the back or a reward in this life, you're serving the Lord with the wrong motive. You're serving the Lord with the wrong motive. Listen, serve him even when no one's looking. He, what you do in secret, he'll reward you openly. You'll get a reputation. Really, reputation's not as important as your character, but you'll be known as a man of God or a lady of God if you do things for God when no one's looking. God can just touch hearts and minds and make people think well of you who don't really even know you that well. Just because you're a servant of God, he can turn their heart. And, and so serve the Lord. Don't expect things in return. Well, I want to be paid. I'll do this, but I want this in return. That's not serving God. Third, I noticed she was content with her circumstances. Even being barren. She didn't seem to be a woman who complained about anything. I respected that character and quality in my mother. <clears throat> 
My mother was content all the time. We never had much. With nine people around a table, you don't have much. I used to complain, oh, we have casserole tonight. You know, noodles and meat mixed together and kind of a goulash type stuff. Ooh, I'd, well, couldn't we have chicken or beef or roast? Oh, it was just sort of a goulash stuff. And I wanted, I wanted something different, you know. Mother did what she could with what she had. She never complained about money. I never heard my mom complain about anything. My sisters and brothers and I, the last time we were together, we were all talking about our mother. She'd gone to be with the Lord and we all said, did we ever see our mom mad, angry? No. Never saw my mom, mom angry. Never saw her blow up. She would just say, now when your father gets home, I'm going to tell him about your behavior. Never, never heard my mom talk bad about someone. She just had character. Uh, I knew there was one of our relatives that had done something and, and we all bugged mom what it was that the relative, we never have to this day known. So, you know, when my mom's 80 and she's going on visitation, going to visit the shut-ins, I said, mom, you're 80. Why are you driving around visiting the shut-ins? You, you need to be a shut-in. Well, it's my ministry and going to ladies' Bible studies. So I guess I shouldn't have been surprised at her funeral when hundreds of people were there. An 80-something-year-old person doesn't have hundreds of people. I'm not talking about 100 people. I'm talking about several hundred people in Grand Rapids from all over the state came because they remembered the impact she had in their life. And I complained about the goulash or whatever it was. My mother never could give us anything when she was getting ready to die, she said, you know, I'll move in with Becky. Her kidneys were failing. She didn't want to do kidney, uh, you know, the dialysis because she said, everyone I know that does dialysis doesn't have any energy. And I still swim every week. So she kept swimming, moved in with my daughter. And of course, she couldn't swim very long. And six months later, she was gone. But we believe she did that so she could leave us a little something. And all seven of us got like $11,000 from the sale of her place. That's all she had. She know every birthday, every grandkid and great-grandkid remembers getting $10 on their birthday. And they used to think $10 isn't much. When the only retirement you have is your, your husband's Social Security, $10 is pretty good. And I, I'll never forget my mom's contentment. She never complained. I would call and say, Mom, you know, it's so warm down here. Oh, but I love the change of seasons. The snow is beautiful. Mom, you haven't been able to go anywhere in a week. Well, I miss visiting, but, but you know, it'll, it'll, it'll go away in a few months and I'll be able to get out again. She was so content. Listen, those kinds of things are so valuable. Contentment for your children's sake. How content are you? Do your kids see that you're content with your circumstances? Or do you complain, I want a different house. I'm sick of this car. Never heard those words. Yet I'm probably kind of content because of my mother. You know, I've joked with people that never saw my mom mad, but my dad made up for it. <laughs> I'll talk about him on Father's Day. He had some great qualities, and he's a, he had some great things in his life. But he wasn't my mother, and he would... Sometimes. He wasn't always content. You won't hear me talk a lot about that. He was grateful. But I think of my mother and her example, and I think probably that's why I've always been pretty content. And finally... She was appreciative of God's blessings. 
What did she do in the end? She reverenced the man of God. She reverenced the Lord. Listen, we need to have attitudes of gratitudes to make the choice to rejoice, as Paul says in Thessalonians. Are you a person who rejoices or complains? You're, you're either someone who complains or you're someone who rejoices. You're, you're one of those two. I told someone one time, you're either a peacemaker or a troublemaker. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, listen, if you're walking with God, you're not dividing people, you're uniting people. It's the same thing with your attitude towards your circumstances. If you're always mad, always upset about something, you're missing the blessings of God. He loves it when you rejoice. And I was, I'll close with this. I was struggling in my own life with some things that discouraged me. And I found David, in, as listened to a scholar, I went and searched it out, two places, two times in David's life when he was just as low as a man can get. And in both those cases, you know what he chose to do? Rejoice and praise the Lord. Yeah. I thought, you know what? There it is. Years ago, a, a godly influence in my life said, well, Dan, I, I think you need to change your perspective, your attitude a little bit. I'm going back 15, 20 years maybe. Said, because you're looking at things from a negative perspective. Little my dad and me. It's not my dad's fault. I choose, okay? So I began a little ritual. I'd call it not a ritual, but I began to sing How Great Thou Art every day. And for the last 15 years, I sit on my porch and sing that. I don't know if the neighbors care. <laughs> the dogs howl with me. No, I'm kidding. But I love to sing that because our God is so great. Our God is so awesome. And he's worthy of all of our praise. Listen, ladies, I thank you for being mothers. And I know it's tough on you. It was tough on my mom. You know, I've got a note. She gave it to me. I've got it in my scrapbook. I came home. She said, what did the teacher say today? And I said, she said, Danny, sit down. <laughs> my mother had to be patient with this guy, you know. And when she went to my ball games and I wasn't always the best behaved on the court or on the field, my mother would no doubt be embarrassed at my behavior. But she eventually came to hear me preach in many places and was thankful God had answered her prayers. And I'm thankful as well. Aren't you thankful for your mother's prayers and her example that she's given you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. While we're praying, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, our altars are always open for you. If you come forward, we'll have someone take a Bible and show you how to become a Christian. You're the most important reason for us gathering besides worship is outreach to see you come to Jesus. And if you don't know him, come today. Our altars are open for anything. The Lord lays you to, on your heart to come forward. You just come. God, we thank you. For mothers, we're so blessed. I don't know, Lord, where any of us would be if it weren't for the godly mother, the godly influence. The sweet words, the encouragement of mothers who believed in us and mothers who prayed and set a good example. And Lord, if there's a mother here who feels she's been a failure, she can confess today and you can cleanse her and she can be an example starting today. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand in song.